back to the idea of resilience and kindness and quiet time to know yourself. I do feel like finding a way, a practice, a, a place outside or to cultivate that is, it's a gift that we can give ourselves. Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Dr. Sayuka Salstrom, the founder and director of the Hanover Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapies in Hanover, New Hampshire. Sayoka has a PhD in clinical psychology and specializes in evidence-based behavioral health interventions with a special interest in anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders. In this podcast, we discuss how she grew up in a house without electricity, how she found her way to psychology, her rigorous training in clinical psychology, and how she has founded not one, but two successful practices, and finally, what her long-term goals are in building a behavioral health practice in rural New Hampshire. I hope you enjoy listening to Sayoka's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Sayoka Salstrom. Welcome to the podcast, Sayoka. Thank you. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, and I wanted to start a little earlier in your story than I usually start, because you told me a little bit about your growing up in West Virginia. And uh, one of the things that struck me was you said you didn't have electricity when you were quite young. Tell me a little bit about that. So I did grow up in West Virginia. I grew up in southwestern West Virginia, close to the coal counties. And my parents were back to the landers um, in these parts. A lot of people know what that is. In the 70s, my parents were pioneers in a way. They um, moved to the area because the land was cheap. They were really interested in small family farming, sustainable living, um, getting off the grid. And they and other people they knew at the time um, my dad had a piece of land that he bought from his brother. They cleared it by their own hands, built a little cabin. Um, the cabin was only one room when I was born. And so we did. We did We did not have electricity, running water, phone, any of those uh, 21st century amenities or even 20th century amenities. It was really like growing up in the 1800s in a lot of ways. And so, um, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, but like, how long did till you had some of those things? So I think we got a phone when I was about five. Um, okay. And I think that came after multiple times of our cabin almost burning down and needing to call for help. Or it might have actually been near miss snake bites because the copperheads and rattlesnakes that were up on the mountain were poisonous. And if you got bit, you wouldn't be able to get to the hospital in time to make it. So um, we had some near misses that way. And then I think that was a time when they decided to try to run some phone lines up there. We were very isolated from other people. We were about a mile on either side. We were on a ridgetop and a mile down the hill on either side was the next house. 
and the roads were only passable by vehicle a couple months out of the year in those early days. So we mostly walked out. Wow. Um, so grocery shopping, things like that didn't do. Yeah. You'd go maybe once, uh, just for longer periods. Um, it, it was more about going to, there was a sort of a shared co-op space where food would be available, um, for people, other people who were living in this way. And of course, going to the grocery store. Um, but a lot of it was sustainably farmed. We had animals and, um, the garden, but we also did go to the grocery store. We weren't hundred percent living off the land. That's amazing. Um, but we would only go maybe once a week and then everything would go. Oftentimes we wouldn't go to get home by vehicle. So you'd put it in the big backpack and, um, carry it up the hill. Wow. So, so you were five when you got a phone, what was, did you go yeah, to maybe school? Maybe around the same it? time for electricity. Okay. Um, I did go to public school. I started going to Head Start, actually. Um, it was a very impoverished area. So there were no preschools, but there was Head Start. And um, I went and started that when I was about four. And in, but in order to get there, it was about an hour and a half bus ride one way on the same bus with the high school kids. So it was all one bus. And wow. the bus stop was about a mile out. And so we did up quite early. 4, 4.30, hike out, and um, I get on the bus to go to Head Start. And then I did go to public school the entire way through my same school okay. in a little town that was about a half an hour away by wow. car, but by bus, it was hour, hour and a half, depending on the conditions. How did growing up like that influence your thinking as you started to get ready to go to college? I was very comfortable on my own. I was an only child until I was 10. I spent a lot of time in the woods. We were, there was a lot of hardship and um, we did modernize over the years. So by the time I went to college, we were no longer living in the cabin and we had all the normal modern amenities and the road was more passable, et cetera. But I, I had never lived in a big city before we did live in a, in Lexington, Kentucky for two years in the suburbs while my mom was getting her master's degree. But other than that, I had lived in that same place. And um, so going to college, I I was looking at small schools for the most part. I wanted a place where I could, I was a runner. I wanted a place where I could go running in the woods. I was mostly trail runner. And that was, was also very achievement oriented. So I was looking at places like Duke and places that to me had a prestigious name, but I didn't really know what I wanted other than I, I wanted to be outside. And yeah. I wanted to be a writer. I was, I was actually okay. an English major and wanted to be a writer, but I, I chose Guilford college, which is a small liberal arts college, largely because of the woods <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> at first. Okay. And so you, so you went to Guilford College. You said you started as an English major, um, but at some point, obviously, you switched. Well, maybe not obviously, but at some point, you switched to psychology. What was the precipitating moment when you decided, you know, maybe not English, maybe I'm going to switch over to psychology? I had an opportunity my freshman year in college to do something called a vision quest. There was a woman in Greensboro, North Carolina, who 
um, contracted with the college to take college freshmen or sophomores uh, on this um, sort of a, a, she had redesigned it for college students. It's some, it's a Native American rites of passage that she had um, designed in such a way to, to offer college students a, um, a way to get in touch with their, um, their story, their life so far, their um, sense of purpose and clarity and what they wanted to do next and also build community. And so this was a six month process that we engaged in a group of eight people. And we, as a group became very close. Um, I was so fortunate to, to, um, to meet them. And it was during that six month uh, preparation process before our actual vision quest up on the mountain where we had what's called council and council was a time when we would sit together and, and listen to each other. There was, um, it wasn't a time for, uh, to give people advice or to problem solve their, whatever they were talking about. It was a time for just deep listening. And the phrase that was used at the time was holding space and the relationships that we developed and the, the what I experienced in those council meetings and with one another when we would call each other on a Sunday night when somebody was going through something hard. Um, I'd, I'd not had that before and it felt unique and sacred. And I had a moment with one of the women who was in my group, maybe halfway through our preparation phase. And I, I still remember going over to her house and, and listening and sharing with her and then walking out to my car and standing there like I'd been hit by a bolt of lightning and, and just feeling this is what I need to do. This is what I, this is what I want to do. Just that uh, you wanted to, uh, to listen. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. Just that space and listen and be whatever it was that we had kind of created together in that process. I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to foster that create that and I, I didn't know about psychologists I didn't know about the field of psychology I really knew almost nothing at that point we didn't have psychologists uh, so much in West Virginia it wasn't a it wasn't something that was in our culture that I grew up in so I had to explore it from that moment forward so once you had that realization that that this this idea of listening to people was something or creating a space for people to be heard. um, How did that then lead you to psych? I mean, in in retrospect, it sounds obvious, but I mean, like, how did you, as a person who didn't have a lot of exposure to that, how did you then kind of make that process change? I don't actually remember too much other than going to the psychology department and meeting with someone and saying, I want to be a psychology major. And um, and yeah, I don't remember the in-between stages. I, I was just committed from that moment forward. I knew that there was something meaningful that it happens when you sit with people when they're in their most vulnerable and scary, dark places. And I felt like I could do that. So you, so you graduated and you fairly quickly uh, went into a PhD at the University of Georgia in clinical psychology. 
what drew you to University of Georgia and why clinical psychology as opposed to one of the other various possibilities within the broader field of clinical psychology, excuse me, within the broader field of uh, psychology, because there's a lot of different you know, branches, like I, I mentioned, we've mm-hmm. talked about um, like social psychology or some of the other, some of the other uh, uh, possible right. uh, I, approaches. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about a lot of those at the time. I, um, I did know that I wanted whatever I did, at, at least at that point, I felt clear that I wanted clinical work to be part of what I did long-term. And so I guess that my options at that point would have been, could have been social work or master's degree in counseling. I, um, the people I had in my life at the time, my professors and advisors, uh, and just how I was in my thinking um, and also being achievement oriented, I really wanted to go to whatever um, program offered me the greatest career flexibility long-term. Uh, I wanted, um, in base, I mean, I, I had a fairly limited idea of what was available. And I knew that I wanted to go as far as I could go in my, in the degree and in the field so that I had as many doors open for me in the future as possible. And so that's where I ended up, um, both at Georgia and also with a PhD in mind. And, and I was interested in research. And um, so I, I wanted both. I wanted the clinical and the research component. And I enjoyed teaching. I thought I would enjoy teaching. I had TA'd before. So all of the facets of clinical psychology and a PhD uh, gave me the opportunity to potentially teach, be an administrator, do clinical work, do research, do all of the above. I wanted those opportunities. So explain a little bit about what a PhD in, in clinical psychology is like, because you know my PhD was in economics. I think it has a different sense um, to it. Um, and I know for you, uh, as a, as a clinician, you have a, a, a component of clinical practice built into it. Tell, tell us a little bit about, about that process of, of what, what is it like going through a PhD in clinical psychology? Um, so it, at least in our program, we were equal emphasis research and clinical, um, some programs are more geared toward research careers and um, some more uh, clinically focused careers. Ours was a pretty even split in the training. And so, but the the overall picture looks like a five to seven year program. Um, at the time that I went through it, the average was seven years for a, a PhD in clinical psychology. Our program was set up a little differently and in fact, uh, more similar to the way that most programs had been previously designed, which was to go through your first three years and then go away somewhere in the country to an internship program and then come back for your fifth year. Um, I think at the time, Georgia was maybe the only program still doing that, but it did have its benefits. They've stopped doing that now. But the one of the benefits is that most of us did finish in five years. And it was just an insanely intense five years, especially because we were competing for top internship programs after two and a half, three years of program time uh, compared to four years or three to four years for other folks. But our program had a good reputation around the country. So 
we did get good internships regardless. We just had to work really hard for those two to three years before applying. We were um, started doing clinical work first month in. We had practicum teams, which are teams of and an in-house clinical uh, community clinic. And the practicum team means that we had students at every level. So we had first year, second years, third years, and fifth years on the team. And we had every session was videotaped. We had people behind the, the two-way mirrors. Uh, everybody, of course, all the clients knew it was a student clinic and we were supervised, very closely supervised. We'd watch the videos in our supervision meetings, talk about everything. So the clinical work was really intensively supervised and that was a big part of what we were doing. And then our research was equal part uh, intensive from the very beginning, working with our major professor in a research uh, project that would become our master's thesis. And then from there, our dissertation. And going back to your question about why Georgia, we did choose, we as in uh, I guess folks that were interested in a PhD in clinical psychology, a lot of us would choose that program based on the researcher, the, the research program that was available, assuming that all things being equal with the quality of the program and the clinical training available. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's an important thing that I recommend to when people talk to me about going to do a PhD now, that's not something I understood going in. I mean, I hate to admit that in public, but I, like, I didn't understand that. I, uh, uh, there's a lot I would do differently if I had a second <laughs> chance at it. Um, but so oh, what too. were you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the nature of getting older. Right. Um, but, um, but like, what was it, what were you attract? What specifically were you interested in doing research in then since you picked it specifically for that? So I was, a, I was interested in trauma research. Um, Georgia had several really excellent, well-respected trauma researchers. And um, the, my major professor was a, was a researcher in the area of sexual victimization. And, um, it, it, but I also did research with uh, veterans and um, other populations of, and, and forms of trauma that people would experience. And so you did, so this is, this internship ideas is different than like what I experienced. So this is a, that's a standard part of a clinical psychology program. It is, it's called a pre-doctoral internship and it's a one year fully clinical position. And we moved away for that year. So I, we applied all over the country and, and we would move away for that year and then, and, and not do, not be engaged in too much clinical research some i mean we'd always have a few projects in the fire but mostly it was to focus on our clinical training in a very specific area and then we moved back for our fifth year but most programs were set up such that you finish your work at the program itself and then you go do your pre-doctoral internship you finish your dissertation during that year you defend your dissertation and then you have your phd oh very interesting so where was your internship and how did you choose it? So my internship was in Durham, North Carolina. Um, it was at the Durham VA and Duke Medical. A lot of the internship programs for clinical psychologists at the time, and maybe now as well, are this was almost 15, 16 years ago, but were VA medical centers affiliated with academic medical centers. So um, Palo Alto in California, Boston Consortium, Seattle, 
um, were some of the ones that I had applied for and interviewed at. And uh, that particular internship was um, a little closer to Athens, where my husband at the time was living, because he wasn't able to move away from his job. It had everything that I wanted in terms of clinical training, similar to the Seattle VA, where I was really interested in um, their program as well. And yeah, and also I had some friends in the area. So it was just a good fit for me overall. Uh, so, so you're at the VA, this is 2004. So what kind of care were you providing? What were the, what was the kind of patient you were seeing? So at that time, um, you may remember and listeners may remember that was around the time that the first, um, OEF, OEIF veterans were returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think we saw some of the earliest uh, returnees from that war, but I was also seeing a lot of Vietnam veterans and um, even a few World War II veterans. And um, I worked in a couple of different areas of the, of the hospital. I worked in, um, I did rotations in PTSD. So I was conducting um, PTSD interviews. Uh, that was very difficult. Um, the interview was a three to four hour interview asking about their most significant combat traumas. And um, it, for most of them, it was the first time they had talked about the, that level of detail, even for a lot of the Vietnam veterans, and then, and then setting them up for treatment uh, and service connection, which is the term that's used to help them receive medical care and benefit for their, their service. And I was also doing a sleep, sleep uh, disorders rotation, insomnia, military sexual trauma rotation, health psychology, integrated primary care. I think I can't remember the others, but I, I was a well-rounded training program. So it was a, like a rotational thing. You weren't just doing the PTSD clinic. You were doing a, a lot of, you were getting exposed to a, a, a many different types of patient, types of, of uh, uh, treatment, so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, different um, areas of specialty, but really the, the treatments that I've been fortunate enough to be trained in and provide and our evidence-based treatments, what we might call the CBTs, cognitive behavioral therapies, but more, more accurately at this point, it's just evidence-based treatments and um, science-based and, and so whatever I was doing were individualized versions of techniques and science-driven strategies that I could teach and, and, and use to help them move forward. So you, you came back from your, your internship, did your fifth year. Um, uh, and then what did you do after you so, uh, what did you do after you graduated from your PhD program? So then I went to um, University of Madison, Wisconsin, or University of Wisconsin-Madison, sorry, uh, for a postdoc. A postdoc is a postdoctoral fellowship, a one-year pre-licensure mandated uh, training um, program that everyone does if they want to get clinically licensed in a state. And um, so I went to Wisconsin, I applied again all over the country. I was interested in health psychology at that time. I think that was an area at the VA and in some of my research, I was developing an interest in the relationship between mental 
health or PTSD in particular and um, and physical health. And so I was interested also in having an opportunity to work in an academic medical center because I was at that time thinking that would probably be where I would end up. And so I applied to several programs around the country and Madison was the best fit for me. Um, it's interesting when I, I, I didn't know anybody in Madison except a family friend who I'd never met before who grew up in Lincoln County. But um, when I went to apply there, it was for interview, it was freezing cold. Um, I had never lived in the Midwest. My family was from the Midwest. So I had some far off family, but I, I went to these other places. They were warmer and <laughs> I liked the programs just as much, but I went through some little process of decision-making where I tried to take Oh, the logistical pros and cons and the practicalities. And I, I just, um, I weighted all of them by all these different criteria and Madison came out the lowest in all the ratings. <laughs> and, and then I looked at that sheet and I thought, well, that's too bad because I really want to go to Madison. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I didn't know that until I did that little, very, uh, a practical exercise using my mind to try to decide but it turns out my heart already knew that I wanted to go to medicine even though it was not the most practical place to go it did not have meet my criteria okay <laughs> um but I but I did go there so a postdoc is a um is a standard part of training is what you're saying because I don't like mm -hmm. some so some fields like economics you don't necessarily have to do a postdoc but that's an that would be an expectation if you're in clinical psychology that you would go do a postdoc in preparation for licensure it's very much standard yeah I I don't know exactly what the legal aspects of it are but at least at the time and for us it was standard for people to do um a clinical postdoc if they were going to get clinically licensed. And then I even had a, a colleague at Madison who had just finished a one or two year postdoc. Oh no, she was going on to do one at Duke in research. So she ended up doing three years of postdoctoral fellowship before she moved on to her position. Um, I think she ended up at Stanford. So it, it wasn't unusual, even maybe a little unusual, but it, it also was the case that sometimes people would do one or two years of clinical or one year of clinical and then move on to a research postdoc if they wanted that specialized training. Okay. What, what does it take to become licensed as a clinical psychologist then? So it, it's a certain number of postdoctoral hours, clinical hours that you achieve and, and through, uh, you have to be supervised of course, and those supervisors have to meet certain requirements. Um, and then you have to take your boards. So our boards were something we studied for and took our last year and during our postdoc. Okay. And you're pretty much there. You have to have graduated, of course. Okay. You have to have a degree. Yeah. That has to be all covered before you go to your postdoc. Okay. So you can't just show up and uh, take the exam. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Definitely I can do not. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So, so there's some evidence-based uh, activity there, I guess. Uh, so, so you, you finished your postdoc and, and, and moved on to the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science uh, in Vernon Hills, Illinois. What brought you up to, to Vernon Hills? So that was 
Uh, Vernon Hills is essentially a suburb of Chicago, um, and I lived in Chicago during that time. There was a professor at Rosalind Franklin, a clinical psychology program, PhD program was well thought of, and um, one of my mentors in grad school had gone to that program and had gone to school with uh, a professor there, and he was... Um, he had posted a position in anxiety disorder treatment to be a coordinator of a new clinic that they were building in the department. And, um, and so I applied for that position. I was, I really enjoyed in my time in graduate school, treating anxiety disorders, OCD in particular. Um, My time at the hospital was wonderful. I learned so much. It was um, really intensive. And, but I, I did at that time, decide that I did not want to work in an academic medical center and I did not want to continue to pursue health psychology. So um, it it wasn't because of a bad experience so much as just, I felt that it wasn't the right next course for me. So then again, and it's not unusual for training programs like ours, we were applying all over the country for jobs that would be a good fit for our background and interests. Um, So I again applied all over the country after my postdoc and, um, but when I saw that particular posting with that particular professor and I had the connection with him and their program, I was very interested in it and applied and ended up there. So moved to Chicago at that time, 2007. And so you were with the university only briefly um, and, and moved into private practice. Is that right? Yeah. So um that was that was a difficult transition because the the clinic was really meant to be an anxiety OCD training clinic, and it was sort of a joint effort by the Department of Psychology and their health system. But their health system was not as accustomed to. It was no fault of the department, but the health system, just sort of a related but separate entity, uh, was not accustomed to the work we were doing. And in order to effectively treat anxiety and OCD, especially at the time before a lot of remote options were available, we would go into people's homes, into the community um, to do what's called exposure therapy. And at the time, and and even now in ways, insurance companies uh, did not did not often want to pay for that. They, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand why we had to go to people's homes. It was sort of unconventional in their eyes. And so they kept kind of putting the kibosh on a lot of the treatment plans that we were making. And it got to a point, because this was just a brand new venture that I was involved in, it got to the point about nine months in that we just decided to pull the plug on it um, because it just wasn't going to work in that system. We needed was, was to, it actually, to really... Mm-hmm. Sorry, was was it actually unconventional? Or, or were you guys doing something not kind of for, new? No. Um, no, not so much. It wasn't unconventional in uh, for the treatment of anxiety and OCD. We were doing exactly what our uh, research and everything that we had been taught, we were doing what we should have been doing to effectively treat it. It was more that um, it was definitely different than anything that health system had run across before. They were more of a, they had uh, medical clinics, not psychology clinics. And Uh, For insurance companies, they didn't really know what to do with us. So because I was really um, in the, I I was trained, um, and and a lot of people do think that's outside 
a little outside the box of what, what they're training, unless you're trained in um, OCD treatments in particular, and a lot of very um, in anxiety disorders or exposure therapy as a primary modality, then it's not necessarily common to go into people's homes to do their therapy or to go into the computer or community or um, we would you know, go to the top of the Sears Tower to treat fear of heights or whatever it was. Um, we just went where the fear was. And that was not something that fit nicely into a, a insurance or um, bureaucracy. The bureaucracy didn't know what to do with that. So there wasn't like a code 30 minutes in an office um, talking about one thing or talking about two things. I mean, that's kind of the coding I'm used to looking at. Um, so it, it just wasn't a neat, they, they couldn't fit it into a clean uh, coding process that they could then just bill for or pay the bill for. Especially at the time. I think that's loosened up a little bit now, but especially at the time. It was okay. just in, in the, the paperwork, the regulations that I, I really did not appreciate them to my mind, uh, encouraging me to do therapy, uh, treatment plans that were not the most effective. I was, I was interested in doing what was going to work best for people. So I, um, so when we closed that, I then did, I move into a practice of, um, somebody who had graduated from that same program had had a practice in Chicago and she, um, welcomed me in, thank goodness. And I kind of had to decide, okay, do I want to stay in Chicago? Um, I had no interest in private practice up until that point. And even after I started working in the private practice, I thought it was going to be a transition period uh, because I really was more interested in continuing to do some research and being at least affiliated with a university. I wasn't exactly sure, but um, private practice was definitely not high on the list until I spent some time there. So what was it like? I guess it worked out okay. <laughs> it did. Um, it, it felt, I mean, to, to be honest, the work with anxiety disorders and OCD was, was the most fun to me. And I think there was a period in grad school where I thought, well, this isn't supposed to be so much fun. Um, I, this, is, this is really rewarding. This is just so creative and flexible and um, okay. it can't possibly be this fun. <laughs> So, you, could you very briefly uh, explain those two disorders, just kind of a 30-second thumbnail of what is it you're talking when you say anxiety disorder or OCD, obsessive compulsive? What, what are those? I mean, I think most of us know those words, but maybe, you know, from mm -hmm. your professional vantage point, what, what does that mean? Um, well, it's an, it's a, a name that we give, just like any diagnosis, a name that we give to a cluster of thoughts, feelings, behaviors that are really impacting someone's life in a negative way. And for OCD in particular, um, and any form of anxiety that is life interfering, which is really what disorder means, right? It's life interfering. Um, it's, it's a kind of what we might say experiential avoidance. That just means that um, this, this uh, internal experience, like a, a sensation, if it's a panic disorder or this um, external thing like um, heights, um, is very frightening for me. And so I'm going to try to avoid it at all costs. And so that experience of avoiding that stimuli, internal or external, um, then it makes it, it, it just uh, perpetuates it. So we know in our 
and our science and understanding of human behavior, that the more we avoid something that is part of our, especially daily life or um, an internal experience, like let's say for panic, it's racing heart, but that racing heart is just part of the human body. It's just part of the human condition. The more we avoid it though, the more it intensifies it. And we might start avoiding um, people, places, uh, experiences, activities that that might bring about um, exposure to that scary thing. And so that's what ends up um, turning it into a disorder because it just worsens over time the more you avoid. So the, the, the treatment then becomes going toward whatever those avoided experiences are. So going toward it in a very particular way, in a guided way, um, at the pace, whatever pace the person is willing and able to, to move at. So is but that you can get really mm-hmm, sorry? Yeah, sorry. Is that both? Are you describing kind of the underlying mechanism or pathology? Is that the right way to say that for mm-hmm. for both? anxiety and OCD or are they different? Yeah, right. So no, so they, they differ more in the, in the content. Um, OCD is a little more complicated and doesn't just fall into the category of anxiety disorders anymore, but um, OCD can look, uh, can take the form of an infinite variety of, of obsessions and compulsions. A lot of people have the image of, of cleaning compulsions or um, contamination obsessions, uh, fear of getting sick, or um, there, there's sort of your standard view of what it looks like, but it can be it, there. It can be uh, only internal, so people might only have um, thought compulsions. There may not be any behavioral compulsion, compulsions. Just it can look uh, an infinite variety of ways. It can take many different forms. So it's important actually that people understand that. Um, the crux is a, is a repetitive, intrusive, unwanted thinking that um, a lot of people experience that. But when it becomes life interfering and you're doing something to try to get rid of that because it's so unpleasant and that thing that you're doing to get rid of it or to avoid it is also creating life interference, that's when you might call it OCD. Okay. And is the treatment in that case is is that also expo- exposure mm-hmm. therapy? It's called exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. Exposure mm-hmm. is the exposure to the avoided stimuli. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And then response prevention is ways to help people not engage in what we call rituals, which are the compulsions. Ritual is another word for compulsion. And really that just means, again, the thing you do to try to make it go away. I, this is an unpleasant experience, this thought, this image, this impulse. I don't like it, um, understandably, and I want it to go away. So I'm going to do this ritual or this compulsion. The problem is it's a short-term relief and long-term perpetuation of suffering. Oh, okay. So, so what was it about these illnesses that, uh, or conditions that, that you found particularly rewarding to work with as a, uh, as a clinician? Hmm. I, um, I, I can just say that I, um, it's very treatable. One, one thing is that people can become so debilitated by these uh, experiences and, 
And, and yet the treatments we have available are some of the most effective modalities in all of intervention science. In fact, uh, I think research-wise, exposure therapy is the single most effective intervention we've had in the last 50 years. It's, it's incredibly effective for what we do, especially when it's done. And there's so many nuances to the way to do it well. But, and, and we've learned a lot in that regard. But um, it's very rewarding to see people's lives open up so dramatically when they are willing to trust the process. And we are asking for an incredible amount of trust from them to do, and this is true for all of therapy really, but um, we're asking them to go to the scariest, darkest places that their mind is telling them exist and and to do that with us early on in the process. So um, a lot of relationship building is involved in that, a lot of creativity to try to understand deeply what, what it is that they are avoiding, not just look at it on the surface. So we got to be really creative together. It's a super collaborative process. And a lot of the things I'm saying are true for all the work that we do. But in this area, to get creative and, and come up with places to go and exposures are just creating these opportunities for new learning. So, um, and we do that together. Uh, it was just so fun. When you say places to go, you aren't speaking metaphorically. You're, you're, you're actually literally. No, I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like it might be, it might be um, the bathroom next door to the office because somebody has a contamination anxiety, or it might be, I, I've walked the streets of downtown Chicago with some of the dirt and grime <laughs> on the street and okay. touched it and had our hands in it. Or um, I, I don't even want to share a lot of the things that I've done in the name of uh, helping people with their OCD symptoms, pretty gross things, but I was absolutely, I was all in, I was all in to do what needed to be done. So the, the, so the rewarding component is this is a, this is a, um, a condition that is treatable, curable, or at least improvable. Very much so. Very, very much so. And and all of anxiety challenges can um, can be very effectively improved with the right care. So so you worked in this private practice for for a few years, um, and then in in 2010 you co-founded the Chicago Cognitive Behavioral Treatment Center, mm -hmm. which eventually had locations in Chicago, Skokie and Highland Park. So, so you had expanded pretty, pretty quickly. How did that come about? I, um, so I was working at this anxiety treatment practice in outside of Chicago. And then I met a woman who was also working there. We became friends and, and close colleagues and felt that she had been there for a couple more years than I had. I had only been in Chicago for a couple of years and, and in the practice for uh, approximately two years. And, but we, we both, we just had a vision. We had a shared vision for, for the kind of practice we wanted to build. I think I've always had a, a bit of a drive to be, to, to engage in program development, to creatively come up with new program ideas, to want to implement those to, and to design my own 
practice, uh, whether it was a practice or a program, or if I was in the hospital, I would have all these ideas that I would want to implement, but the bureaucracy I felt like was often a impediment to putting these things into place. And so being in that private practice really helped me see, I didn't, I just had to abide by our ethics code and, um, and our solid training. I didn't have to ask 10 people in line ahead of me in the bureaucracy, whether or not I could implement this idea. And that was very appealing. So when I met Dr. Holly in the in the practice, we we just had a shared vision of some things that we wanted to do differently and what kind of team we wanted to create. We just really wanted to create our dream job for others. And um, and we had a nice model in the practice we had come from, but we we had some ideas for some things we wanted to do that was more in line with our values and some of our training. So we took off on our own. That's and so and it was in the first yeah. year or so that we had those three offices, at least two of them we had in the first couple of months. And then I think within a year, we had the third one in Lincoln Park. So three offices, how many people uh, involved in the practice? It, it was a, I mean, obviously it was a growth. I think in the first year we only had one or two new clinicians and we would rotate through the different offices. I don't remember exactly the rate of growth, but when I left, we had about 10 or 11 psychologists working in those three offices and then a fourth office on the way. Wow. So what was it like? Um, kind of being a founder, um, uh, you said, you know, you had a vision, uh, you shared that vision with, with your colleague, but I mean, now you're not just taking care of patients. You're having to build systems, decide, you know, figure out how to bill all that, all that. What was that mm-hmm. like making that shift from being kind of employee to, to entrepreneur? I think in a lot of ways it a lot of that came naturally to me to the ideas and the desire to implement and that drive. And it was also not something I had had any training in whatsoever. I had no training in business. I had no training in, uh, I had no training even in the business of psychology or private practice work or any of that. So it was really hard. <laughs> I say we, we spent most of our time, I think, just learning from ginormous mistakes, um, face in the mud constantly. At least I felt that way. It was all, it was all trial and error. Um, we had some wonderful mentors that we called up around the country who had practices that we admired and felt like were similar to what we wanted to create. And we consulted with them here and there, but mostly we just, we just, um, made mistakes and, and did the best we could we just learned by doing and it was hard. It was, it was, I tend to take a lot of responsibility for the commitments that I take on. Um, I take, I, I take a lot of responsibility for doing good work with my clients and being a good mentor and creating a place that people want to go to work um, every day. And so as soon as we had people working with us, I just felt so strongly that it was my responsibility to make sure they had um, what they needed. 
not just, I mean, compensation, yes, and benefits and all that, but I mean, the clients that they wanted to see, they had the community connections, they had the opportunities to teach at the university if they wanted to do that. So I was, I just stayed really busy trying to create those opportunities for them and make sure that, I mean, they had given us their trust by coming on board. And that's the same now with my practice here. Um, and I felt that I owed them that effort. So it was just so, really a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible amount of work. What was it like trying to, did you, I assume you still saw patients or were I you saw a lot of patients. No, okay. I saw a lot of patients during those years. So you I, was, I was just... working full time clinically and then uh -huh. run and then managing and building the practice on top of that, as was my business partner. We were both working full time clinically. What was the key to success? Being willing to make mistakes was huge. I was not so willing, but I did make them. <laughs> I was I'm much more willing. I'm much more uh, compassionate with myself and, and open to making mistakes now. Still not pleasant, but um, at the time, I, I do tend to be kind of perfectionistic and I would give myself a hard time and be pretty hard on myself. So, And it didn't matter, of course. I still was going to make uh, plenty of mistakes. I think the key was... Um, I can be risk averse in some areas of my life, but in business, I, I trusted, I, I, I just trusted a process. I took a lot of risks. Um, I reinvested, we reinvested everything back into the business as I still do. I just had a sense of where to put my energy. I don't, I don't know. Um, a lot of hard work. Okay. So you you were with the business until 2015 uh, when you left that practice to come up this way to uh, to Vermont uh, to the Vermont New Hampshire border. What brought you to the decision to leave a thriving practice in a busy Chicago and associated suburbs to come out to rural Vermont? Um, so there's several answers to that question. I it was a busy, thriving practice. I had a, I don't know what I might say, a big life there. I, I was always doing something. I was always with people. I was networking constantly. It was a, it was, it was big and probably bigger than was, well, definitely bigger than was healthy for me in any way. It also growing up where I did living in the big city was <laughs> a little more diff. I adapted, right. I, I had intended to stay there long-term. I had intended to stay there until retirement. When I made the commitment to start the practice there, it was, it was a long-term commitment. I didn't start that just thinking, Oh, I'll be out in a couple of years. It was nothing like that. I intended to stay, but the longer I was in it, I think there was a growing sense of this is not the right place for me. And this is a level of intensity that is not healthy for me, largely self-driven. But then I, at the same time that all of that was ramping up, it was like a, we would say it was like a train that we just couldn't catch. As soon as it started, it, um, we, there were very few CBT practices in Chicago at that time, and, and it just took off, and we just felt like we were chasing it the whole time. Um, but I had met some people on the East Coast um, that my mom introduced me to, probably in 2008, 2009, 
um, and meditation teachers and close friends that people that became my close friends and we would go um, I would go visit them different places along the east coast over time that started to become more frequent I, I, I think it was in 2013 or so uh, a few of them moved to Vermont to retire and also moved to a place that was just a better fit for our philosophy of life um, a place that was just I think a healthier place to live and grow as a person um, and to have a sense of community with one another and so when they moved here I, there was a growing sense in me that I was living two lives when I was in Chicago and um, and then when they moved here I, I had always had this sort of magical idea of what Vermont New Hampshire was when I was growing up my dad was uh, loved topographical maps and we always had atlases and maps around the house and I would I would sit there with these maps and look at where the mountains and the green were <laughs> in the different places around the country. And I, I didn't know what it looked like. We had National Geographic and I would look at pictures, but in my mind, um, I would imagine what Vermont and New Hampshire looked like based on the topographical map that I was looking at. And I had this sort of idealistic image and, in my mind, and but I didn't have any reason until these friends of mine decided to move here, that I was just going to upstick my life in Chicago, which I was so committed to, to move. And then when they did, I thought, okay, well, that now I know where I'll retire. <laughs> and then I started coming to visit more often. And I thought, oh, uh, maybe in 10 years, I'll move there and be with my um, community of friends. And then I kept coming back to Vermont over and over. One year, I think I came back six times. And that feeling of feeling like I was in the wrong place just kept growing. So I made the best plan I could. Um, I just decided at one point that I needed to, it was time to start the process. I didn't know how long it would take to get myself here, but I just knew it was time to start the process. And I did the best I could to exit with integrity, um, despite how embedded I was into that that practice and that community. I was only, it was only five years, but man, it was a long five years. It was five years in the practice. Sure. Um, it was yeah. very intense. So, and I was really very committed to it. I mean, to go to, that was a thing you created with your, with your colleague. I mean, that was a, that's mm -hmm. a, that's like your baby, right? Like you, you made this thing from nothing. There was nothing. And then you made something. Um, yeah. Hard to we were working double time the whole time. Um, yeah, it was hard to leave. And also, as soon as I made that decision, as maybe you have experienced in your life, when you, the more that inner sense of this isn't right grows, and then you create some alignment in your life, alignment with your heart, your values, that there's a, a peacefulness that comes with that, no matter how difficult and inconvenient the transition. And yeah, so I got to say, my decision happened. to retire from the army and come come to UNH definitely was that was absolutely uh I had that same feeling yeah <laughs> yeah so it did take me about a year a year and a half to to get here and then okay. when I got here I was still consulting back in Chicago I was still attached in some healthy and unhealthy ways I think to my life there um 
there was a, there's the author, Elizabeth Gilbert. I remember when I was going through this transition and I had a lot of people in my life who were like, what are you doing? And this is, are you, you're at the top of your game and where are you moving? And, but I remember listening to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert and she said something like, I had a wonderful life, but it wasn't my life. And as soon as I heard her say that, I just thought, my God, that is exactly how I feel. I've built this wonderful life myself for myself, but it's, and I felt so fortunate to have that experience, but it wasn't for me. Well, that's, that's uh, remarkable. So then when I got here, I, it, it took me two plus years before I started, two years, about a year and a half before I really started working locally. Um, I was still consulting and so your primary income was still coming. Your primary income was still coming from Chicago, just long distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a little while, and I just I, I I wasn't working as many hours, obviously, and I was also working to build something here. I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be yet, but um, it takes that takes a lot of time, and I think I also just I need I worked on my house. So I just needed some time to decompress after what I had done to myself out there. And in grad school, I mean, I say it was just Chicago, but I, I, I was a workaholic. Am I don't know. Um, so, ever since I started grad school, I was overworking. So by the time I got here, that was at least fourteen, fifteen years of overworking. Okay. So, what was your vision coming to Vermont um, for for a profession? You didn't you you didn't quite have a clear vision of what it was you were going to do. Is that what you were saying? Um, I, I, I did have a vision. I wasn't quite sure how it would manifest, I guess, in, in detail. I, um, I, I do, I really enjoy hiking. I enjoy being outside. I, um, outdoor sports. I learned to ski when I moved here. It became, it, it, it has been a part of me my whole life, but it was not a part of my life so much when I was in Chicago. And I knew that that was not right. I did not live an out of doors life in Chicago. And I am, that is much, a much better fit for me. So my vision when I moved here was that. Yeah. I have to say like when, when, when you told me the story in our previous conversation about your growing up in West Virginia, and then I was putting that together with Chicago. I'm like, that, that's, there's some dissonance there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, have, I haven't spent a distance. lot of time in Chicago, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's not a lot of, that's not an outdoorsy kind of life. Like, I mean, you can, it's a cool city by, by, yeah. you know, definitely a cool city, but yeah. Um, yeah. Not I, a lot of woods. I, <laughs> no, not a lot of woods. I spent a lot of time on the lake, but not, not in the water so much, but on the, just walking along the lake. Um, yeah, but no, I, cool. I think I was pretty, in some ways I had gotten pretty far from myself, from the self that knew that I wanted to be in the mountains outdoors. And, and also that I, I knew that I wanted to do that more in my career and make that my life, not just a hobby. And I had a, a sense of what that could look like. But I, the part that I didn't know yet is how I was going to create that. And, and still, I'm still working toward that. Okay. So you did, so you can't, so you did eventually uh, start your own practice. 
here in, and you created the Han Hanover Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapies. When did that come into existence? Uh, kind of like you were, you were just your, on your own for a period of time. At what point did, did the Hanover Center uh, become a thing? Um, yeah, so I think it was 2017 when I really started seeing clients locally. And I, when I moved here, I really, I was wanting to create another business venture in, in outdoor pursuits, um, less so treatment and therapy focused, but more so growth focused using the same methodologies, but because what we do is so much about growth and evolution. I don't see it from the biomedical lens. And so to do that outdoors just feels and has been for me an incredibly powerful, transformative process. And I wanted to create opportunities for people in the general population to participate in those kinds of activities, small expeditions, hiking, backpacking, um, that could look like a, a number of different things. And so, but I, I need a lot more training to be able to do that. And so I thought, okay, so I'll move here. I'll, I'll see some clients a couple of days a week, try to generate enough income to go to some trainings and, and learn really make a pretty big career shift. And, but as I started working clinically in Hanover, number one, I, I, I was not able to, it's pretty expensive to live here, as you know, and right. it, it wasn't all about not being able to generate enough income, although that was part of it, just doing a couple of days a week and then trying to train. I, I just, uh, I also, the need is so great here and in a lot of places, the need is so great. I had a, a six month waiting list within three to four months, um, something crazy like that, maybe not exactly, but it was as soon as I really let people know I was here and I set up shop, the, I I couldn't I couldn't even keep up not even close to keep up to the referrals that I was getting and and I know that one of my maybe my best what I can offer is my ability to to build and all the mistakes that I had made in Chicago and to learn from that and build something new that I felt was even better for lack of a better word uh, I so so it was just gradual. I kept telling everybody I wasn't going to ever start another practice again. It was too hard. It was too much to manage. It's not um, where I see my life going. But but that the need was so great, and I felt like that's a skill that I have and and a impact that I can make a positive impact. I hope to build a team, a strong team, to do the work for the, in the community and and build programs that the community needs. So um, I met some people just gradually in my communications and introductions to the community. I knew no one um, in my, I knew no one in the field of psychology when I moved here. It was all just cold calling and um, hoping someone would pick up the phone. So now we're a group of maybe six or seven. I, I feel like I should know that exact number, but we have some transitions happening. Um, some new people coming on board six or seven psychologists and quite a large administrative staff to support their, their work and, and the clients. So you've largely replicated just from the outside looking in, it sounds, it sounds like you've, you've largely replicated what you did in Chicago, but now in Hanover, which 
just for, for folks outside of the area here, Hanover is where Dartmouth is, Dartmouth Hitchcock, uh, the the one academic medical center uh, in the state of New Hampshire. Um, so that's where you, that's physically where you're, you're located. How much, how different is the practice is the Hanover center versus uh, what you did in Chicago? That's a very good question. Yeah. I have to say, when you say I largely replicated what I did in Chicago, I think that's absolutely true. And there's this part of me that told myself over and over and over, I will not replicate what I did in Chicago. (laughs) So that's a hard one for me to swallow, even though I know it's true when I hear it. Um, And I've heard it from multiple people. I, um, I think on the outside looking in, there are many similarities. I'm different than I, I, I've grown. I, I think um, I'm different. So the way that I am with the people I work with, I, I think, I hope I'm more, even more open, more um, present, more available. I give more. I, I had that value then, of course. It's not that I didn't, that my values have dramatically shifted, but the way that I, how much I give, um, I mean, both in terms of compensation and, and other things, um, there are differences in, mm, I, there's a ton more administrative support that I give to the staff here, the clinicians. Part of that is, a lot of that is because I, I really am trying to create an environment where they can do their absolute best work through trainings that I, that, that they have a training stipend through, and, and I'm always encouraging training in, in certain areas of the field that are, that are growing. And I just try to give them the best possible work environment to do, to live their best life and also to do great work for their clients with their clients. And, and the same with the administrative team that I'm trying to uh, give them. A, a living wage, a, an opportunity to have their dreams and to give them a, a job they want to come to and, and to have a team that is as equal as it can be to have for there not to be in, in, in our, I mean, you know, in the, in the field of medicine, there's often hierarchies, hierarchies Absolutely. with support yeah. staff and clinical staff, hierarchies, there's hierarchies everywhere. Um, I, I'm doing the best I can to create a team that is as non-hierarchical as is possible, given the context that we're in and the systems that we that we exist in. So there's, I work. I'm working really hard to create a foundation for this practice that it can scale up to the degree that it remains cohesive and just excellent quality care. I don't know that that's fundamentally different than Chicago, but I do feel that I'm doing it in a different way. I've learned a lot. I'm listening and reading a lot about leadership and management. At this point, I have retired from clinical work just recently. So all of my time is spent in management. Um, That was not the case until this year. So do you miss it? It's different. Um. Yes, very it's much. A relatively recent and thing, but yeah, okay. It is a very yeah. I, I I haven't. I still have a few clients, but very few. Um, two, in fact. <laughs> I I do miss. I I really enjoy the work that the clinical work. 
that I was doing. I, um, it's an, it's such a collaborative relationship, and I I do miss. I feel like I growing with someone. I, like even the language, clinical work, or working with someone. I, I try to use words like with and together, and it, it is not me doing something to them or for them. We are working together very much collaboratively to help them evolve and grow. And I evolve and grow in that process just the same. I'm doing my own work. That is very much our stance. We're not treating mental health disorders, even though, yes, I technically speaking in some, if you look through that lens, sure, but that's not the lens we look through. We're all in the same boat. We all suffer. We're all experiencing pain and we're um, all doing the work. And I don't say that ever to diminish anything that anyone is going through at all. Everybody has their unique challenges and some histories provide intensive opportunities for growth. But the stance is not one of um, trying to remove the power dynamic as much as possible. That sounds like a great environment to create. Let me, let me ask you um, a little bit about like the services that your organization offers. Is it, is it specialized for anxiety and OCD or do you treat a a full range of, of uh, behavioral health issues? Kind of tell, tell, tell us a little bit about um, the practice. So, yeah, we, we do, we do work with individuals with a full range of challenges and when it was just me because of my specialties it was really limited to that although in a smaller community I had to become uh, more of a generalist very quickly (laughs) and and uh, to increase my competence in certain areas in a big city you can become more of a specialist and and remain that but um, in our practice now with the with the scope of the providers we have uh, we specialize in um Yes, still anxiety, OCD, very much so. Um, uh, and also working with older adults uh, in a subfield called Jero Psychology. Um, we have a, a postdoc in that area. She's wonderful. Um, I have uh, a couple of folks that work with children and adolescents, which is a huge need, as you know. Um, college kids. So we really do have a, several folks that work with college kids and understand their developmental needs um, and depression, of course. Uh, we can help people who are experiencing periods of depression. And um, we also have a neuropsychologist on staff now who's very talented. Uh, that was not something that I really had intended or have ever um, had in our practice. We never had a neuropsychologist working in the practice um, so I'm learning a lot in that process of integrating him into the into the practice. But um, he's a wonderful of, addition to the team. What does he do? What does the field of neuropsychology involve? So that involves doing assessments for learning disabilities, ADHD, autism okay. spectrum disorders, um, intellectual testing, academic testing. So all of oh, that. Uh, I know there's very, a huge and, and for, for all. Yeah. Yeah, and for all ages, not just not just kids, adolescents, and students, but sometimes people in the workplace or 
or just for life reasons, will be interested in their uh, learning profile. Very neat. What are your what's your vision for the future? Where is the practice going? You know, what what are the what are the services you hope to add? My my biggest goal in that regard is to just try to understand what our community needs. And right now, one of those we don't have any what's called IOPs. It's an intensive outpatient program. Uh, we have Dartmouth does have a program for substance abuse, but we don't have IOPs for uh, children, adolescents, college kids that are struggling with anxiety, depression. Um, related disorders, we don't have that level of intense programming where people can, for three, four, five days a week, several hours a day, be engaged in group therapy, individual therapy, um, their own self-directed practice. Um, and and there are some excellent programs in Boston and and even Portsmouth and some places, but it's it's a very difficult thing to refer a family to Boston to do an intensive outpatient program when their child is or adolescent or college student is in need of that, because then they really have to relocate half the family to that place to do this intensive treatment. It's a very, it's a lot to ask for a family to do that. I have no idea if I will I, I have ideas of what those programs could look like. I've worked in conjunction with those programs my entire career, but um, I've never built one. I don't know 100% for sure if we will build that into our clinic, but um, we will move in that direction as long as it's right to move in that direction. We'll, we'll figure out if that's something we can build or support someone else to build. But I do think it's a huge community need for more intensive treatment options. Um, I, I have a real passion for outdoor programming, as you know. So there may be there may be outdoor programming in our future. I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't mean like a residential wilderness therapy program, nothing that specific, but possibly um, opportunities for doing the work in an outdoor setting in a programmatic way that would be outpatient and would fall in line with our current, um, what we currently offer. I also have just a, a, an interest in integrated health care. It's a long-standing interest of mine. And so um, I may eventually have a couple of psychiatrists on board or even a, a physician who's interested in integrated care. Who knows? I have ideas, but no immediate or very specific plans. <laughs> and, and it's hard to outline in this context because I, I it will all depend on the people that I'm collaborating with. And, and I, I certainly can't build and run all of those, manage all of those programs. So I would need collaborators and um, that will just have to evolve organically. And I know we've talked about your interest in developing a, a charitable nonprofit as well. Um, so what what is your vision for that? So for the last year and a half, I've been working with a young woman. Um, her name is Jordan Hughes. She was a she received a grant to work full time on a in a nonprofit 
capacity. And we've been working for a year and a half to develop a, a charitable fund for mental to increase mental health access. Um, it is not it is not in existence uh, just as just yet. It's not fully launched. So the the mission is really to try to equalize access to mental health care. There are so many systemic issues around that uh, at every level. And so I, I feel like even though it is akin to pulling people out of the river as opposed to changing the reasons why they're falling in in the first place, um, we have zero, we have, we really have very few programs in existence to help people fund mental health care um, in the Upper Valley, but there are very few programs that we could find anywhere. And it, it's not an ideal scenario to create a fund to pay, the, the fund would pay providers to um, to support people's mental health care who couldn't pay for it, either by filling the, the gap between their insurance coverage and the actual rates, or um, or to pay all of it if they if they didn't have insurance or couldn't their insurance wasn't paying anything. Right now we have community mental health, which does the best they can with the resources they have, and it's it falls very short of what the community needs, and and only a select group of the population is eligible for community mental health. And then you have the the community providers, some of whom take insurance, some of whom don't, but regardless, they, there's a, there's, there's quite a lot of discrepancy in who can access the most appropriate care, both for mental health and for educational services, such as neuropsychological testing. There's, there's just a huge gap um, depending on financial ability. And this fund would try to bridge that gap just at least a little bit to apply for many grants to pay for their mental health care. So we we do have a we have a lot of community connections built uh, toward this effort. We have a website in the works. We have we have an intern starting from from your MPH program actually. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're excited about that. She starts next week. Uh, it's wonderful. So. I, it, it's moving forward and I'm pleased about that, but That's I don't, great. we don't have a specific date. We'll just keep working on it as, as we're able to. Well, I want to close with a couple of questions on more kind of generic general topics of, of, of behavioral health and mental health. So as a, as a mental health professional, what generic advice would you give to people to maintain good you know, maintain good mental health? Like what are the kind of couple of tips that you would say, like, you know, basic things like, uh, you know, you go to, when you're dealing with a physician, be, you know, Hey, eat a healthy diet, you know, get some exercise. What are the, what are the kind of mental health, you know, similar mental health uh, related pieces of advice you'd say that these are the basic things to do? Um, well, you name two of them. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, Exercise because, and diet. Because Good. There All right. Is no, right. There, there is no difference. I, sometimes I say whoever sure. came up with the idea of mind body, that, that was a ridiculous thing to say. There is no, we are one organism 
And so that, that, um, that guy, Aristotle, it, God, <laughs> I don't know. Somebody, somebody way back there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> somebody, um, it, it makes no sense to me. We are one organism. So yes, the, the, I feel, I call them the four pillars um, exercise. I mean, finding movement you love and the word exercise is loaded. I get that. Um, I, and it, it can feel contrived. So I just prefer to say movement, just find movement that you love. And being outdoors, we have a lot of data. We don't really need the data, but we have a lot of data. It should be intuitive. We know we feel better when we're outside in the woods, exercising, moving. Um, that's key. Finding sports that you really enjoy doing. Yes, eating a, a nutritious diet is there's a lot of research on what's called the microbiome um, the gut microbiome and and how that impacts our mood i think that will become it's a burgeoning area of research it will become more and more ubiquitous um, what we're learning in that regard and so it's something worth paying attention to for sure i heard of that and that sounds fascinating i, I don't know anything, yeah. much of anything about it but when i heard i'm like that that is amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> it affects well, because 90% of our neurotransmitters are in our gut. And we often think, well, what's happening in our brain is go then moving to our gut. But yes, it's bidirectional, but more more so it moves uh, gut to brain, and as opposed to brain wow. to gut. So what we eat is absolutely affecting how we feel, um, how we are in the world. Uh, that and, and sleep. Yes. So really good sleep, hard to come by with, um, lights <laughs> and, and technology as it is, uh, but extremely important. Um, the research on these things is, this is not so controversial, right? I mean, we hear about it all the time because it's true. Um, and, and then the fourth pillar being mindfulness or, uh, some form of, contemplative, quiet, uh, present moment focused practice. That is also key, especially in a technology driven world. Um, it is really important for our mental health and, and yes, social connection. So those are four pillars, but we could go easily beyond that to social connection, meaningful relationships. It doesn't mean a lot of acquaintances. It means, um, it means taking risks to build emotionally connected, meaningful relationships, uh, even if it's just a few. And um, I would say the, the last thing is our relationship. I, this kind of goes along with mindfulness, but it, an extension is our relationship with ourself, that that is built on a foundation of compassion and self-kindness. Again, the word compassion is loaded for a lot of people. What does that mean? How do I do that? But we tend to know what the word kindness means. And, and we know what it means to be kind to a friend. And for the most, for most of us, we don't treat ourselves with that same kindness, acceptance, non-judgment. And that is fundamental to our ability to move through the world with more resilience and grace. That's lovely. So uh, let, let's leave on. Oh, I have one last question for you. Um, so why should everybody go on a multi-week backpacking trip uh, 
through the Why are you asking me that, Mark? Because <laughs> I know you. So, for listeners, I know you were just recently on a, a, a extended uh, uh, backcountry uh, uh, trip. So, to, so what would you? Um, so, what what does one get out of of being in the woods for for that long a period of time by yourself? In, in addition, soloing. I, I think that that's such an individual thing. I, I know what I. Well, I don't even know if I know what I got out of it, but I, it's still unfolding since it was this year. Um, I don't know that everybody should do just that, but I, back to the idea of resilience and kindness and quiet time to know yourself. I, I do feel like finding a way, a practice, a, a place outside or to cultivate that as it's a gift that we can give ourselves to the extent possible i know everybody is not able to take off sure. for a couple I'm, months I'm and do a sabbatical a bit, and yeah. <laughs> um, i think that's really cool very fortunate to have had the opportunities to do that largely because of my family friends and my team that allowed that but i the essence of that for me was something i'd wanted to do for a long time it was a challenge it was taking care of myself in a deep way um, and returning full circle to where I came from and how I lived growing up. And in some ways I felt more like myself out there than I felt in years. Um, I do have a daily meditation practice. I I move in the woods and exercise every most days. I, I, I live well that way, but this was different. This was, this was something I really needed to do to push my limits and challenge myself and face some fears that had been growing. We all have them. So I do hope that whatever that is for people, if there's an opportunity for some reflection, for some physical challenge to be in the mountains, to be outside, to be on the water, whatever that is, to take it when that opportunity arises, because you will learn something. <laughs> right. You may not like, I, I mean, I, my, my lessons were largely because of my failures as usual. Um, and I'm glad to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Failure tends to be a great teacher. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Sayoka, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate uh, your sharing uh, your story and um, I learned a lot. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to talk, talk with you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.